All right, if you guys will turn to Acts 17, enough of this birthday talk. Let's just dive right in. Acts chapter 17. While you guys are turning there, I wonder if maybe you could help me settle a friendly marital dispute here. So this is never a good idea. Um, If you're at the marriage retreat, in fact, this is just not marital advice to go public with your disputes. But as I was looking at this passage, it kept reminding me of this movie. And it's one of those movies that no matter how many times you've seen it, if it's on TV, you're stopping everything and you're watching it. And for my wife, it's one of those movies that once is too much. Like, never see it again. I'm curious your thoughts. So I think I've got a picture of it. Got to look at some reactions. <laughs> what do we think here? It's a good one? Ooh, that was, ooh, once is enough. Oh, my wife will be very pleased when I go back and tell her that I, I think I've lost this debate here. So the reason I thought of this passage all the time um, this week is this really is Paul's life. The plot of Groundhog's Day, if you guys have not seen it, is this guy Phil winds up in a town and he has the same day just on repeat over and over and over again. He wakes up, it's the same thing. And I'm wondering if Paul is feeling some of the same stuff. He does have a slight difference. It's the same script, but it's a different town. And so if you were here last week, this passage is probably going to seem really familiar to you because this is almost identical to what we did last week. But there's a few little nuances, a few little differences. So let's look at it. We like to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you're willing and able, please stand. Acts 17, starting in verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they had received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and Greek men. But the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea. Some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up, but the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea, Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I hope, like I said, this sounds familiar because this is the exact same story Paul seems to be encountering left and right. He shows up in a city. He finds the synagogue. He starts preaching. Some people begin to believe and get really excited about the message he has. Others get really upset or travel in from another town and they begin to stir up all kinds of trouble for Paul. And then the believers send him away to do it all over again in another town. So since so much of this is familiar to us, we'd preached it last week, we've looked at it a couple different times. I'm not going to kind of do a Groundhog's Day sermon and try to do everything Rod did last week again. But what I want to focus on are what are the differences? What are some of the unique parts of this passage? And so I want to look at kind of two thoughts, kind of up front, smaller ones, little appetizers, if you will, and then we're going to get to the main dish, the main course of verse 11, and we're going to camp out there. So let's look at the first of the little appetizers. Verse 10 says, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Paul being led away at night is actually a hugely important detail. This is not only unsafe, I mean, it tells you how dangerous Berea or Thessalonica must have been for Paul to choose to leave in the middle of the night and travel 50 miles by foot. This is, 
kind of something we don't do very often. That's basically the distance from your seat right now, almost to Battle Creek. So for him to walk that path at night, not with like paved bike paths and walking trails, this was an off-the-beaten-path city. This wasn't the, the polished Roman road that he was traveling. Berea was the city that he went to because people thought they'll never look for him here. But more than it being dangerous for Paul, this would be unseemly. In the Roman world, it was all about honor, right? And one of the things that we've talked about in this series was the epitome of honor was to be the first person over the wall in a battle, right? Imagine you're sieging a city, you're in your armored gear, you're attacking this wall, and there's people on top with boiling oil and they're throwing it down. They've got rocks and they're aiming for your head and here you are and you climb this ladder and you know that there's arrows and there's swords waiting for you on top. This was the epitome of honor and bravery, to be the first person right out in front, your nobility for everyone to see, scaling that wall and risking your life for the sake of your country. And then we have Paul, middle of the night, sneaking away. In fact, if it's like other times, I'm sure that it probably was, he's being lowered down from that wall in a basket, sent down to this nothing town of Berea, this looks a lot more like defeat than it does victory for Paul. This is Paul, the former head of the class in Judaism, like advancing beyond everyone else of his peers. And here he is being lowered down at night and escaping to a nothing town. What would lead Paul to do stuff like this? Where does Paul get that kind of humility to face that kind of disgrace in front of everyone? He gives us the secret of his humility in Philippians 2 says this, in your actions have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, be, who made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He humbled himself, Jesus did, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul's secret is that he's not looking to himself. He's, not, he's looking to the one who humbled himself for Paul, the one who became a servant so that we could become free. The secret of humility I just want to tell you guys, it's not to walk into situations and say, I got to be humble. I got to be humble. I can't think of myself. I can't think of myself. That just makes you self-obsessed. The secret to gospel humility is to stop looking at yourself and to look to him. To take out your eyes off your own navel and put them squarely on your savior. Paul would have never gotten as far as he did if he was worried about reputation and he's willing to endure this shameful thing. What about us? I had a professor who would routinely ask the class and ask me, are you willing to be humiliated for the gospel? Are you willing to fail for the gospel? Are you willing to, to embrace that failure so that the gospel can be seen all the more clearly? Are we? Or are we more concerned with our reputation and the appearance? So that's the first quick little appetizer. Let me give you one more. Verse 11 has the other, or verse 12 actually. It says, as a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and Greek men. I'm kind of bummed here with our English language because grammar in English language kind of dictates that it's always sir, subject, verb, object. But in the Greek, you don't have that. You can kind of move things around anywhere that you want, and as such, they put things at the front of the sentence that they want you to notice. This is the key thing. This is front-loaded. Notice this piece right here. And I think your English is trying to do the best that it can with it, and it's, 
it has prominent Greek women front and center right there for you. Before it says, and some men, it should say prominent Greek women right there. And unfortunately, I think the Bible has gotten a really bad rap for being a sexist book. In fact, there's blogs and there's books all over that talk about, is the Bible good news for women too? Let me give you a spoiler. It is. It's great news for women as well. But verses like this, you just got to note it when it's there too. The Greek wants us to see this. This is so progressive for the first century. This is something that isn't in a lot of writings back then. In fact, hundreds of years later, scribes would look at this and think this has got to be a mistake, and they wanted to change it because they thought this can't possibly be right. It's too progressive for that time. The Bible exalts women. It exalts women. The gospel wouldn't have spread in Acts if the Holy Spirit hadn't worked through women and through men for this. And so I just want to point this out, and I want to note some translations. There's none of the major ones, but if your Bible right now doesn't have that, Do a little investigation. Make sure they're translating the text and that's the first thing on their mind, not any other kind of agenda. The Bible exalts women. I hate that I even have to mention that and I hate that there's people that have to write books that ask that question. All right, verse 11. This is kind of our main course. I'm excited. I'm I'm getting amped up here. It says this, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why were they noble? Noble just means the attributes that you would expect of royalty, of nobility. And it tells us they were open-minded, right? They were clear thinking, do what's best for the people. For they received the message with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. It's a preacher's dream right here. I want to tell you guys, this is. There's a reason this passage has been preached a lot of times. Honestly, this is the hope of Crossroads too. We don't ever want you to believe something because Rod says it. We don't ever want you to believe something because anyone else up here says it. We want you studying the word and believing something because God says it, not any of us. So that's why this has been preached so much. And I've heard, every time I've ever heard it preached, the application is always the same. This is why we need to know our Bibles. This is why we need to memorize scripture. And that's a great application. It's a wonderful application. But I will say in the 21st century, I think that application assumes a lot. It assumes first and foremost that we still have an external authority. When I say authority, I want you guys to know what I mean. I'm saying the source that we go to to learn who we are, how we should act in this world, how the world itself acts. What's the authority in our lives going to be that tells us who we are and what we should be about? And I think that that application assumes that we still have something outside of ourselves that we run to. And then secondly, it assumes that that's still scripture. So I think that's assuming a lot today. So I want us to kind of take a step back, do a little digging, and look at some of the roots, the presuppositions that are underneath our beliefs in our lives. So I want to argue two things. One, we need an authority. We all need an authority in our lives. We all actually have an authority in our lives. It just might not be what we think it is. I'm actually going to make the countercultural claim, too. I know it is that we all need an external authority not an internal, an external authority. So that's the first thing. We all need an authority. Second thing, we need to test the messages that we're constantly getting against that authority, just like the Bereans did. We're great at absorbing messages. We really are, believe it or not. The problem is sometimes we're just so blissfully ignorant of the fact that our radios are even on and we're receiving messages at all. 
So I want us to step back, think about what our authority is going to be, and then how we can test the messages we receive against that. So at the risk of quoting the same debaucherous atheist that I did a month ago, let me give you guys a David Foster Wallace quote um, that I think actually explains a lot. So David Foster Wallace begins, Alexiana likes it, thank you, okay. He starts an address, and he says this, this kind of story, this illustration. He talks about these two fish that were swimming one day, and they passed an older fish. And the older fish, as he swam by, he looked at the two younger fish, and he just said, how's the water, boys? And the two younger fish kind of shot a confused look at each other, and they kept on swimming. And then eventually, one of them looked at the other one and said, what the heck is water? And I hope you guys see what he's getting at, because it's actually really, really profound. We are all swimming in various things. There's water all around us that's influencing us, impacting us. It's, the, it's where we live and what we encounter. And we just rarely step back and actually say, what is the water that we're swimming in? So my hope today is that we're going to draw that kind of into the front of our minds, what that water is, and then evaluate whether or not it's in line with what authority we should be looking to. So number one, we all need an authority. Look at verse 11. They received the message with great eagerness, the Bereans, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I love this. These Bereans hear it, and they immediately run to their authority to gauge whether it's true or not. Remember, an authority is whatever you look to to tell you how you should be, who you should be, and how the world should act as well. It could be a million different things, right? If you, it could be past experience. If you have a traumatic experience with bees as a child, when you see a beehive, that past experience is going to be an authority saying, stay away, stay away, stay away, stay away. If you're taking classes, the syllabus that you get is what tells you how you should act, what you should do, when you should do it. We all have a million authorities. When you drive, there are signs and there are lights that tell you how you should and shouldn't act. And if those aren't enough, you've got me behind you honking my horn, letting you know how you should and should not be responding right then. I do it, guys. I am not a timid honker, just so you know. It's the Chicago. If I've ever honked at you, Chicago, sorry. <laughs> I'm not talking about these so much, though. These are what I would call lowercase a authorities. These aren't capital A authorities. These are lowercase ones where we still have higher ones that supersede them. If getting down to the lake with your friends means passing a, a beehive, you kind of just skirt around it and go. If you're late for work, your mind just kind of sees the word optional on top of the speed limit sign, right? These are not ultimate authorities for us. All of us, however, we have some ultimate authority that drives us, that supersedes everything else, something that we check major truth claims against, something that tells us how we should live and how the world should behave, our capital A authority. And for the first time in human history, I actually think that it's not external anymore. It's moved completely internal. Let me give you a little bit of what I mean by that through some history, all right? Classic view, this is still the tr truth in the West or in the East. I lived in China, it's still there. The classic view was that the highest value was to do your duty, to put the needs of your community above your own, to sacrifice yourself for a higher good. Duty over desire would be really how you could say it. Heroism, right? It's the first over the wall. Risking your life for your people. And then 
17th and 18th century, we had the Enlightenment, and it became all about kind of what you can think, the rationality of the mind, what you can reason, what conclusions you can come to, what you can deduce. And then shortly thereafter in the 18th century, we had the Romantic period, and it became all about the heart. It moved about 12 inches lower, and it became all about desires and passions. And now, for the first time, we really have moved completely away from the classic view It's almost the complete opposite, in fact. It used to be the highest value was to submit yourself and sacrifice yourself for the collective good. And now, what's the highest value of our society? Be true to yourself. Be authentic. Don't sacrifice who you are for anyone or anything. Don't you compromise who you are. Everything has moved internal. Everything has shifted. You guys see why marriage is so difficult today? It's a classic collective construct in a modern individualistic world. And I think the hard, and the hard part in the shame is that when these two ideals clash, people immediately think marriage is the one that needs to bend. My partner is the one who needs to sacrifice for me. They need to recognize who I am. They need to constantly bend to my needs. It's a different sermon, though. So as a culture, I think we've moved from external to internal authority. What do you want to believe? What do you want to do? What do you want to be about? Be true to you, right? Let me give you guys a little example of why I think that. I've got a few video clips for you. Look, here's the thing about Diet Coke. It's delicious. It makes me feel good. Life is short. If you want to live in a yurt, yurt it up. If you want to run a marathon, I mean, that sounds super hard, but okay. I mean, just do you, whatever that is. And if you're in the mood for a Diet Coke, have a Diet Coke. Diet Coke, because I can. Not trying to have a preach moment, but it should not be a phenomenon if a girl decides to or not to wear makeup. If you want to beat that face down, then beat it down. If you want to go natural, then go natural. Do you, boo-boo. Be happy. I love me. I love me. I don't know about you. But baby, I love me. ending. I hope some of you guys are going to be singing it, right? (laughs) Do you guys hear it? You guys hear that? This is, I didn't have to hunt hard for these things. In fact, I just went to a movie and that Diet Coke ad played and I was like, oh my goodness, this is it. Like, it's in almost every single song. And you know what? This is an older crowd 
comparatively to a lot of crossroads. So lest you think I'm just picking on younger generations and you're off the hook, there's generations that did it my way. There's generations that said, if it makes you happy, can't be that bad, right? This is not just a new millennial thing. Let me say that, all right? Some of these messages, they're so overt, right? You guys hear it, I hope. Let me ask, though, have you guys heard these clips before? Have you guys sung these songs before? Have you ever stopped to think about what they're communicating? If these don't seem a little bit off to us, it's probably because it's just the water we swim in. It's probably because we have an internal authority. And it makes a ton of sense. I mean, it's understandable. It's the product of our culture and our time that we live in. We live in a choice-riddled world. Every day, you get tons of choices. In your life, you're bombarded with choices. You decide what you want to eat. You decide what you want to wear. You decide what you want to watch. You decide what you want to be when you grow up, where you want to go to college, where you want to go on vacation, who you want to marry, where you want to attend church. We're bombarded with choices. In fact, I would love for someone just to count how many choices you make in one day. I don't think you can make it to lunch because it's so many decisions that make us feel like we are the master of our own sea. In fact, what do you want to post? I wonder how much social media has impacted us in this. You're the authority, right? All your followers... All your friends, they just, they continue to validate your authority with their likes and their attention at your every whim and every musing. This is why it's so seductive. That Diet Coke commercial, because it feels good. Because I can. Nothing about because I should, because I can. This is everything. Go after your desires. Nothing about sacrifice yourself. Nothing about submitting. It's enticing feels good to say, I'm the one at the sale. I'm the master of my own sea. It feels good to say, I don't have to change. I don't have to submit. Baby, I was born this way. You're the one who has to recognize it. Most of us in this room are internal authority people. I know I am all the time. And if you're wondering if you are too, let me just ask you, when's the last time you saw a movie or heard a song and you ran to scripture like the Bereans did? to test to see if it was congruent with it? Have you ever said the phrases, be true to who you are? You can't judge me. I'm entitled to think what I want, do what I want, believe what I want to believe. Most of us can't spot internal authority piece because it's just the water that we swim in every day. We all need an authority in our lives For many of us, even as Christians, it just might not be what we think it is or what it needs to be. So let me say this really clearly. As Christians, we cannot have a capital A internal authority. We can't. It's not an option. God says, that's my throne. No one sits on it but me. And believe it or not, here's the great part. Believe it or not, as much as our culture would say it sounds repressive, it sounds restrictive, that's actually the greatest news in the world. It's actually the best news that we can't have an internal authority. Let me give you a few reasons why. Let me give you reason number one, why it is so much better to have an external than an internal authority. Here's something culture doesn't tell you. External constraints actually increase creativity and freedom. This is a real pragmatic one, but 
One of the great misconceptions is that we flourish with total and absolute freedom. That's a lie, and it's not true. Let me illustrate this. Let me give you just, bear with me. Let me give you a thought experiment, okay? So if you will, close your eyes. Close your eyes if you're willing. I want you to think of in the entire universe, I'm going to give you five to ten seconds, and I want you to think in the entire universe, anywhere in the world or, or the galaxy, whatever, as many objects that can be white as you can. Go. Okay, stop. Now close your eyes one more time. I want you to think of as many objects that could be in a refrigerator as possible that would be white. I guess, statistically, most of you guys should have found it a lot easier as soon as you mentioned the refrigerator. Or, when I talked about the whole universe, you automatically put constraints within your mind and you thought about the room and you thought about, oh, this person had a white shirt and, oh, the the lights are kind of white and the screens are white because we naturally put constraints around things. We flourish when we have bumpers, when we have guidelines, when we have parameters to work inside of. In fact, it's why most management experts are going to tell you that productivity goes up, morale goes up, job satisfaction goes up when there's clear expectations that are given to people, right? We flourish when we actually have some boundary lines. We're not meant to be the internal masters of our own sea and just to have complete autonomous freedom. In fact, that's the message of Scripture. That's the refrain of judges over and over again. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and chaos abounded. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and chaos abounded. So that's the first one. Pragmatically, it actually boosts freedom and creativity and flourishing and happiness when we have parameters. Number two, having an external authority takes all the pressure off. You have nothing to escape with, you have just everything on your shoulders with an internal framework. You have to figure out what you're going to do, what job is best for you, what person you're going to marry, whether you're feeling something that's good or bad, something that's valid or invalid, something that's right or wrong. An internal framework leaves everything on you. It's exhausting. What if you don't really know what you want? What if what you want isn't really what's best for you? An internal throat Authority structure leaves all the onus, all the responsibility completely on your shoulders. Let me give you number three real quick. I think most of us know flat out just an internal authority is not true. Instinctively in the back of our minds, it's the lie of Genesis 3. You can be just like God. It's just repackaged in a bright, new, shiny, philosophical package. Internal authority works for personal preferences. Chocolate, vanilla, paper, plastic. What hairstyle do you want this spring? Some of us don't even get that. (laughs) It breaks down, though, when you apply that same thing of personal preference to absolutes. Try the same tactic with the laws of our world. You know what, gravity? Yeah, that's not really my truth. You know what? Maybe the laws of our country. You know what, judge? I reject your sentence because that's really not going to work for me. Try to do it on a rainy day and make the sun shine. An earthquake. Try to even do it with your spouse or a roommate. It doesn't work. We don't do that. Why? Because these are absolutes. Our personal preference doesn't really matter. It has no bearing on them. But we live in a society that's been raised to believe that anyone can be anything. Everyone is a star. 
If you only believe enough. We live in a world full of people that are just egocentric enough that they believe they're big enough to tell God how he should and shouldn't do his job. I don't believe in the Bible. Why? I don't think God would say this or God would say that. I don't really like that part. To which God lovingly responds just like he does to Job in a gracious response where he just says, Job, where were you when I hung the stars? Where were you when I told the waters of the sea, keep backing up, back up, back up, okay, that's enough, no further. Where were you when I put the world on its axis? The problem is our view of self is way, way, way too big and our view of God is way, way, way too small. That's the problem of our world. Let me be clear, I'm not saying get rid of all reason, all feelings and desires. Those are gifts from God. What I'm saying is at the table of authorities in your life, they are in authority, but they're not at the head of the table. God says that's his seat. God gave us minds and wisdom, but they're an authority, not the authority. So let me just ask you, what's the ultimate authority in your life going to be? If it's God, that's going to cost you some things. You don't get to be the master of your sea anymore. God shares his throne with no one but he shares his kingdom with all. I want to challenge you to find another authority that does that. Every other authority will demand you sacrifice everything for it. Make others your authority, and you'll constantly live your life trying to measure up to other people, bowing down to whatever it is that they think of you. Make yourself your authority, and you'll constantly wilt under the pressure of having to decide everything on your own. Make God your authority, And you'll find a king who is willing to exchange heaven for a cross. The good news, that's the good news the Bereans were so excited, so eager to investigate and look into. That's the message that Paul is proclaiming to the world. We all need an authority and we have the best one right there. Second thing, we all need to test these messages against that authority. Look at verse 11 again. They receive these messages, or they receive this message with great eagerness and examine scripture every day to see if what Paul said was true. We're swimming in water whether we believe it or not. Advertisements, movies, music, books, social media, you name it. And as Christians, we're known for being really good at screening for content. Is there bad language in this? Is there any sex, any nudity, violence, gore? Does it have any of those things? Okay, you can see it. We're really good at screening for those, but it's almost like we're airport security and we're like stopping the guy with the pocket knife, but letting the person with a giant bag of anthrax just right up, walk right on through. Because we don't even think about the messages that are underneath. Those are the far more powerful, far more subversive thing. Let me give you an example of one of these outright subversive propaganda things that we all know. To see what I can do to test the limits and break the rule. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. Evil. Pure evil. <laughs> Guys, this is the message of every Disney movie, though. Ratatouille, it's this exact same plot. Everything's recycled, right? It doesn't matter about parental advice. It doesn't matter what your king says. It doesn't matter what your colony or your kingdom wants or needs. 
What you need to do is go deep inside of yourself, find out what you want to do, and then you'll be free if you just let it go, right? Oh, he's anti-frozen. Please don't hear me in that. I have a little daughter. She's 10 months old. She gets a little bigger. She's going to be dancing around, singing the song with a little princess dress on. I guarantee you. But I also hope to teach her. Teach her to ask questions about what the message in that, in that movie is. And how does that actually compare with the ultimate story? How does this story line up with God's story? And is it consistent with the biblical worldview? Ignore your parents. Be who you want to be even when it hurts others. Desire over duty. Disregard your king. How as Bereans can we search the scriptures and find how these messages either align with or disagree with the message that God has laid out for how the world should and shouldn't operate? What's the water we're swimming in? We're consuming massive truth claims every day and we don't even realize it. These aren't just examples of how our culture thinks. Let me just say that. These things, they're stories that we're catechized into. They're shaping how we think every time that we turn on the radio or TV. My old seminary professor, his name's Kevin J. Van Hooser, and we thought it was really funny to print up shirts with his face that said KJV only because I have no idea why. In seminary, that's the level of humor you get. But he talks about this stuff all the time, and he says this. He says, movies and TV may not take the form of a three-point sermon, but they still preach. Their goal is to capture our imaginations and thereby form us. Some of you guys might think I'm over-exaggerating, I'm blowing all this out of proportion, but let me give you an example of how powerful a force entertainment is. I lived in a communist country, and I was always shocked by what movies they would allow and what movies they wouldn't, and it wasn't based purely on the content rubric that we talked about, sex, language, gore. It was all about the messages. And as you start to dig in, you begin to realize why that is. In fact, HBO Romania has a very fascinating documentary about why communism failed in Romania. In this documentary, it's got one of the greatest titles ever. You guys are going to love this. It's called Communism vs. Chuck Norris. (laughs) Yeah. It's on Netflix. You guys can watch it. The whole thing, though, attributes the fall of communism to American entertainment. That when people began to watch movies, their imaginations were stirred. Their desires were enticed. They began to see the communist waters that they swam in, and they began to reject them, and they ultimately overthrew the government. And they say it was because of Rambo and Chuck Norris and Rocky Balboa. It's a fascinating, fascinating movie But here's the deal. The communist government gets something that we don't. I think we so often just think entertainment's entertainment. It's neutral. It's just what I do that's shut down for the day for a little bit. We police and patrol the content of what we watch and what kids watch. At least I hope that we do. But we ignore the powerful messages underneath. We are shaped by story. God made us this way. He created us to be shaped by story. Story speaks to us. It shapes us at our most fundamental being. The Berean question then becomes, how do we know if these stories are good and true? And to that, I'd say this is where the traditional application comes in. We need to know our Bibles. Can I borrow this? We need to know this story right here. 
In fact, it's almost like the currency people who look for forgeries. And what do they do? They study the real thing and they study it and they study it and they study it and then any little inconsistency becomes obvious to them because they know the real thing so clearly. But how do we do that in a world where the average American sends 10 plus hours a day behind a screen and maybe minutes in our Bibles? What's going to win? The answer is obvious, I think. We'll never give up the throne of our lives until we really look at that king who did it first for us. I'm not saying we have to have more Bible reading than entertainment, but I'm saying that our hearts have to know this king, know this story of the one who sacrificed all for us that empowers us to try to step down off our own little mini thrones. In fact, when I read passages of scripture like this, I always want to ask, where's my king in this? Where is Jesus in this story? And he's all over this passage. He's the ultimate Paul who was willing to be lowered down in a basket, willing to become disgraced so that those that he came to serve could be saved and safe. He's the exalter not just of women but of all of us, the benevolent king whose authority and rule is used to elevate, not constrain and constrict. He's both what the Bereans heard about and were enticed by and where they looked to test it. He says, all scripture testifies to me. This is the story of him. For us, we need to lift our eyes off ourselves, off our desire to call the shots and hopefully find, not hopefully, and find a kingdom and a king whose authority truly does bring forgiveness and the acceptance and freedom that we all long for. Do you guys know that story? Has it taken root in your life and in your heart? That story will change your life, and it's far better than anything and far more true than anything that Hollywood is putting out. Let's pray. God, I love the fact that you are a God of story and that stories communicate to us. Lord, I just pray that your story would be so real and so true and so powerful in our hearts that you would just plant it so deep inside that we can enjoy entertainment, but we can see it also for how it tries to shape us as well. Lord, I pray that we would, if any of us need to, um, and all of us do, to constantly remember to step down off our own thrones and to put you in that chief seat, Lord thank you that your rule is one that brings freedom and not not death we love you lord and we need you capture our hearts in jesus name amen